0: What's up, interpreters? I'm Scott Veer. I'm a senior historian and interpretive planner at History Associates Incorporated.
1: What's up, interpreters? I'm Hallie Fainer. I'm a freelance interpretive planner and exhibit scriptwriter.
2: What's up, interpreters? I'm Heather Manier, corporate engagement and partnerships manager for NAI.
1: And what's up interpreters?
3: I am Song, your events and engagement manager with NAI, and welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to have both Scott and uh, Hallie with us here today um, talking about interpretive planning. We just came off of a national conference in Little Rock, and I will tell you that interpretive planning sessions were some of the best attended sessions of the whole conference. Um, Obviously, it's a hot topic, but I'm not sure that everybody knows exactly what interpretive planning is. So do you guys kind of want to give us like a quick 101 on what exactly is interpretive planning?
1: I would say on a very basic level, you know, interpretive planning is part of strategic planning. And, you know, when we work with sites on developing an interpretive plan, we're working with people that are so busy, you know, running the site, coming up with their interpretive programs, doing all of the day-to-day management. So interpretive planning is really a a chance to like take a step back and kind of look holistically at your interpretive program. So, you know, thinking about uh, your overall goals for your interpretive program, thinking about your different sort of themes and whether they're still serving your purpose. Um, and then, and then kind of developing a a game plan for the future, you know, coming up with recommendations for what you want to do, both with personal and non-personal media, and then coming up with how to implement those in sort of the next five to 10 years, usually.
2: You answered my question. I was wondering how long, how far out you plan, but it probably yeah. depends on the... the it, it varies on the site.
1: I mean, I've worked on plans where it's like they say it's going to be a, five-year plan, but then you, you look at a previous plan that has been done for that site and it hasn't, they haven't done anything in 15 years and some of the things haven't been totally checked off. So sometimes it's, you know, when people get the chance to do it.
0: Right. And it's, you know, it's a process that involves engagement, not only from the people actually writing the plan, but from staff members, volunteers, stakeholders, community members. So it's a process that can take time, but it's absolutely one that's worth doing.
2: Right, partnerships are super important with this, right? I mean, and some exhibits or interpretive plans more than others. Do you have an interpretive plan that you can remember that was particularly challenging?
0: I mean, I think (laughs) they're all challenging in their own way. And I'm trying to think of a good example.
1: I recently did one for um, Appomattox Courthouse and the plan itself went beautifully. Like, um, And the client team was great. But, you know, the subject matter was kind of tricky on that, right. trying to 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 navigate how to talk about the Civil War and, and just kind of with everything going on. And so, and they really, the park really wants to, you know, push that. And so one of the things that we did is we had like um, a historian's roundtable with sort of subject matter experts coming in. And that was sort of a unique aspect of that plan, you know, because it was sort of working with outside academic partners and and one of the things that came out of that is even just categorizing the site is not just like lease Sur- it's not really like lease surrender it's Grant's victory which kind of totally blew my mind in a certain way because that's how they, they always talk about Appomattox it's the surrender site so that was I don't know like that was just sort of an interesting an interesting framework that well and that's been around
2: so sure. I mean I visited that when I was a, a kid Mm-hmm. So they've had interpretation there for a long time, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'd say one that had some unique challenges was we did a project a couple of years ago for the Virginia Beach History Museums and they had three historic houses and the goal of this whole process the reason they hired us was that these houses were known as hidden treasures and that people in the know knew them, loved them, loved their programs. But so many people just had no idea. They went to Virginia Beach for the beach, for the recreational opportunities near the waterfront. And so part of the process was figuring out, all right, how can we tie in what these houses are doing to kind of the broader community, this broader, not just the local community, but also all the tourists who were coming through? And also, how do we make sure that the stories of the houses are connected, but that each one has its own unique offering has its own unique reason to visit has its own unique stories to tell so it was really about trying to achieve that balance of what's the connective tissue but also what's what makes each house special what's the reason to visit each one
3: so you guys brought up a a topic that is well it's a hot topic it should be a topic but of uh more of like inclusive storytelling Mm -hmm. Um, in that civil rights example that you gave, um, are you seeing trends leading toward more inclusivity of involving community from maybe marginalized communities or telling the, you know, in quotes, the whole story or the true story in your planning? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. 100%. So yeah, whether that's working with uh, descendants of people who may have been enslaved at a place, whether it's working with uh, indigenous nations connected with a site. You're seeing a lot more of that. I will say that the interpretive planning process is not the place to start that outreach. That outreach really needs to start before that happens. So that's something that a lot of sites that we're working with, they've been really on the ball about making sure that these conversations start beforehand. And then those conversations continue as part of the planning process. So, that's definitely something we're seeing. We're also seeing a lot more interest in research um, to make sure that the information presented tells the broader story, that the scholarship is up to date, that it's accurate, because that's really critical, especially if somebody's doing frontline interpretation of a complicated topic. You don't want to just kind of push them out there and have them give a talk. You need to give them all the resources available so that they can create an engaging program, and if they're challenged on any of the facts, they can respond with, well, here's what we know what we know. Here's the sources we used. Here's the information we have so that the visitor is aware that, hey, we're not making this up. This is grounded in scholarship. This is grounded in sources. And this is why we're saying it.
3: Right, absolutely. I find that even walking around like my local zoo, I see people listening to a program and then on their phones Googling it, Mm -hmm. you know, to be like, oh, is there really only 40 emmer leopards in the world, you know, so people do fact check themselves on, you know, just online. So I think that that is a really important aspect to get all of that correct.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, visitors, they ask questions, they want and meant you know, some visitors are looking for a fight and... You know, that's something you deal with, but many visitors, they want to know. They want to know how you came about to your conclusions, how you came about to the information in your program. So the, you know, your example of the visitors Googling on their phone, you know, that's a perfect example. It doesn't mean they don't trust you. It just means that they're interested in getting more to the story. So that's a sign that interpretation is doing its work. But at the same time you also need to have that information as well so that if the visitor does ask the interpreter directly the interpreter can respond appropriately
2: you know when we're talking about inclusivity um, we're also talking about disabled visitors right and accessibility do you see that as much as other types of diversity when when you're planning do you see that the need or the want for that when you start an interpretive plan
1: yeah it's a really big consideration i mean i we do Scott and I both work a lot with the park service and you know that's a huge mission for them but yeah just kind of consider especially with historic sites it's it's Mm -hmm. a challenge sometimes because you know you're working with a historic house and maybe you can't add an elevator so how do you make sure that a person who is in a wheelchair can get a get a sense of what the second floor might look like. Or do you decide, you know, we're not going to have visitors go up to the second floor. We're going to keep everybody on the first floor. And that's the experience. And those are things you just really have to work out with the site and kind of thinking about both access, but then kind of what the park can manage from their day to day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll also say that interpreter planning, that's a part of the conversation, uh, but it can't be the whole conversation. So with my clients, we'll have these conversations about accessibility. But I will freely admit I am not an expert on how to uh, provide accessibility in every situation, in every aspect of a site. So I encourage my clients to work with specialists in the area, work with communities that represent people who have accessibility needs so that those voices are being heard, that that expertise is being utilized Uh, We're also seeing a lot of how can digital interpretation promote accessibility, not only in terms of access to places that people with mobility needs might not be able to reach, but also in terms of places that are out of the way for a lot of people. So I'm working with a site up in Alaska, and this particular park, there's no roads to it. So if you want to get to the park, you either got to take a boat in or you need to fly in on a seaplane. And just right there, if you're living in the continental United States and you want to get up to Alaska, that's that's a significant effort. And then you need to do even more effort to get to this place. So the site in question, they do a lot in terms of digital interpretation so that somebody who is never going to get up there in person, they can still learn about it. They can still form meaningful connections. They can still understand why this place is important, why it needs support, why it needs protection, and why they should be invested in it.
3: I'm assuming you saw a big uptick in that type of interpretation during uh, the pandemic in 2020. Are you seeing that sites are continuing to extend themselves into the digital world for the reasons that you just said, Scott? You know, people can't get up there or they, you know, it's either cost prohibitive or just physically really, really challenging. Are you finding that uh, these sites are continuing to put money and effort into that type of interpretation?
0: Absolutely. And there's been a lot of research on just how important the digital presence is in terms of just getting on a visitor's radar. I forget who said it, but somebody made the point, and I 100% agree that for so many, I'd argue even most visitors, the visit doesn't begin when you pull into a parking lot. It begins when you Google the name of the site. So having that digital presence, it's helpful for providing interpretation for people who who can't get to a site, who can't access the site. It's also just helpful in attracting that potential visitor and saying, hey, here's what we are, here's what we do, here's our mission, here's what we offer. And so it's a way to kind of communicate to that visitor, encourage them to come, and then after they leave, encourage them to continue. So whether that's a digital tour, whether that's a social media presence, all those forms of digital engagement, they meet multiple needs.
1: Yeah, I've been, you know, it's kind of interesting coming back from the pandemic right now because we're seeing, you know, this kind of people wanna get back to the real thing, right? It's like, there's there's this push pull between um, what do you wanna invest in your digital resources and what do you in, invest on the ground for those visitors that are there to to see the real thing. But it's it's interesting, like how much the pandemic's like skewed all the visitor data and just like all the things that you use in interpretive planning to sort of be like, okay, here's where our baseline is. Like everybody's baseline is totally screwed up from the last five years, um, which has made planning kind of interesting because what people were really gravitating towards in the pandemic are not like what people are gravitating towards now in terms of what not necessarily the types of experiences that they're looking for. So it's kind of an interesting time mm-hmm.
2: and even expectations, right? Like of, mm-hmm. like you're saying, Scott going online and and googling that place to see, you know, can you just not go anymore? Can you just look virtually and not actually have to go anymore? When you were talking about the place in Alaska, so you're creating an interpretive plan for this park. and then, are you work, Do you work with like, um, you know, drones and things like that to capture pictures? Like what types of um, resources do you use to make sure that people who can't get there might be able to experience these remote places?
0: Sure. So the approach is going to be different for every site. So me personally, I'm not flying any drones, although that does sound fun. That is something that hasn't come up yet for this park, but there is another site that I worked with not too long ago uh, that was out in Colorado and working with the indigenous tribes connected to that site, uh, they expressed the need for more imagery of it so that members of the tribe who were not living nearby this site could still see it could still uh, have access to it. So, in that instance, yeah, aerial photography was one of the recommendations in the interpretive plan. Again there's no one size fit all for every site but in that particular instance it made sense based on the feedback we got from uh, our indigenous partners on that project
3: all right shifting gears just a little bit now so you definitely help interpreters and organizations with their interpretive programming from a holistic standpoint you know anything from like hey we're completely redoing the pathway at this botanical garden to you know new exhibit design content how much non-personal interpretation versus the personal interpretation do you work with as far as, you know, coming in as a consultant? Do you do both or is it mostly the non-personal? I
0: mean,
1: mostly non-personal.
0: Yeah, I'd say the same for me too. Um, We tend to do a lot, if we are commissioned to create an interpretive product, we do do some, we have done like some recommendations for like tour scripts and tour outlines, but we tend to be hired more often for, hey, We've got an exhibit panel here. What text should go there, or like where should waysides go? We want to create an online timeline. We want to create an online exhibit. So we tend to be hired more to do the non-personal uh, interpretive forms, as opposed to creating personal interpretation programs. Typically, in the interpretive planning works we do, we'll make recommendations about personal interpretation but we're not the ones actually developing it in most cases.
1: Yeah. And, and Scott, you've done personal interpretation. I
0: have, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: For many years, I was a uh, park ranger at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. I also was a tour guide for many years at Mount Vernon. And I was briefly an educator at the White House Historical Association.
3: All right. So Scott, you definitely know your stuff. <laughs> Very
2: cool. I, that's I also, that's like a perfect Segue because you know, we are trying to diversify the field. Uh, it's um, it tends to be very white middle class. Our organization is more than 50 percent, you know, middle class women, <laughs> white, a lot of white women, and so we're trying to diversify. That's been a goal of ours. Um, we have a Jedi mission justice, equity, diversity, accessibility, and inclusion. And so, as we try to diversify, we talk to people. Um, young people, especially, about all the different ways they can get into interpretation, right? And History Associates does a lot of different stuff. I mean, you know, corporations, legal, museums, you have all these things on your website. Scott, how did you get into sort of from being a frontline interpreter to a different type, you know, still being in the field, but really from a totally different angle?
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting story. So the whole field of history consulting, I had no idea existed until maybe about a year or so before I applied. When I was interning at Harper's Ferry, one of the rangers there applied for a job at History Associates. He ended up not getting it. And this was a guy who has gone on since then to write books, to win awards. So like he's done very well for himself. But him mentioning that he had a job application there was how it got onto my radar. And then I graduated, I was doing various part-time jobs, doing kind of the frontline interpretation. And one day I saw that History Associates was hiring and I'm like, well, if they they didn't hire, you know, so-and-so, there's no way they're hiring me, but I'll throw in a resume. I'll see what happens. And what
2: were they hiring for? What was the Uh, job?
0: Yeah, it was a research historian. So that's kind of our entry level in the organization. And when you first get hired, you're typically hired as a historian or an archivist. But as a kind of an entry-level historian, you're going to be doing kind of everything that the history side does. So I applied for that. I got an interview. Hallie was one of my interviewers. And uh, I must have done a pretty okay job because I got a job uh, job offer and started there at the end of 2015. And I've been there ever since.
1: I like to say that was my greatest contribution to History Associates was hiring Scar. <laughs>
2: How about you, Hallie? How did you, how did, what is your, I mean, we know what your role is. Well, Yeah. Being, like, yeah. You know, so yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I, I was, I was at History Associates for gosh, like 11, 12 years. So I had a similar path to Scott. I was hired right out of undergraduate as a research historian and kind of did every different kind of research, really learned how to research. I was not, I didn't have an Interpreter's background. So I find like people that do personal interpretation. I find them so impressive. I could never do what they do because um, I think first and foremost I'm really a writer. So so yeah, and so I kind of then kind of gravitated towards the museum field and interpretation at History Associates, and left right around the pandemic, and kind of have been doing this on my own now, but really focusing in on kind of music, mostly exhibit development and um, exhibit script writing.
3: What is the What is your favorite thing about your job? I mean, I,
1: I think this job is so cool. I just, <laughs> I, I really think it's, it's like such a cool field. I get to work with so many cool organizations, and for me, it's like I, I get to learn about so many different things. I'm not a subject matter expert in anything, but it's, it's great to be able to, you know, come and work with people that really know everything about a site and then kind of pull that information from them and distill it and say, here's what the most important things are. So it, in a way, it almost helps that I don't know everything because it kind of, what is really important rises to the surface, but it's just, it's so fun to get to to learn about all these different things. I've learned so many different things uh, through this work.
0: Yeah, no, I'll, I'll echo that. Uh, just the variety of clients I've had the privilege of working with. Uh, It's just been amazing. And I've gotten to travel all over the country, Uh, got to go down to the Florida Everglades, got to go up to Alaska, Just, just incredible experiences and just working with people who are so passionate about the work that they do. They care so much about these sites. And just, you know, even in my short time in the field, just seeing how the field has evolved and, you know, seeing the innovative ways of, that people have worked on to better tell these stories, uh, you know, the outreach, the partnerships that are happening these days, it's been really incredible to see and it's just, it's given me a chance to really just see so much incredible work that's, ha- that's happening, not just in the museum and the historic sites fields, but also with some of the nonprofits that we work with in terms of telling their histories and their stories and the great work that they're doing. And, you know, just knowing that I got to play a very small part of that. It's just, it's, it's a really cool feeling.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> I have a question. How did you find NAI? Like how did, because again, you do so much and I'm kind of curious how you came, because really what I'm kind of wondering for all the other small, like interpretive planners and small businesses, how do you find your work, you know, or how does that work find you? And then it made me think maybe some of that is through NAI, but then how did you, how did you find NAI? I... That's like my big PSA announcement is like,
1: get certified because it will, it, it really helps your career. You know, that is actually, I don't have a website or anything, but people find me through NAI. Um and you're a I
2: consultant think, for History Associates. Is that right? I, <laughs> I was, but now oh. I'm freelance.
1: I mean, I guess like when you go to the database and you look by state, it's like, if you're trying to find an interpretive planner in Maryland, you're going to find like me and Scott and maybe one or two other people so we cornered the market yeah <laughs> good job. definitely get certified you learn a lot obviously you know and and both scott and i took the process of interpretive planning course and and that was really helpful you know i both of us came to this through the history route you know we were both history majors and so we were very much into the field of research but then kind of found ourselves gravitating towards interpretation in museums and i I don't know exactly how I found an AI. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. just being in the field and talking
2: to people and- yeah. So you are, just... you're a certified interpretive planner. Yes, both of us yeah, are. Both of you are.
0: Yeah. Happen. And my story is much less fun. When I got hired, Hallie had just gotten certified. So I was seeing <laughs> going out that Hallie now certified interpretive planner. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And like You're, you're like,
3: like, I want to be that.
0: <laughs> at, at that point, I probably didn't even know what interpretive planning was. And then a couple years down the line, it was like, you know what, this is interesting. I want to get more into that. And then Hallie left to form her own uh, business and the company was like, hey, Scott, want to get certified? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And so, you know, as we say, the rest is history. Most people tend to find history associates. It's a mixture of we'll respond to RFPs, particularly from government clients. But a number of pl- people will find us through our website and they will reach out through there. So it's a mixture of how how we get work.
3: The America 250, big, big deal coming up soon. Um are you guys working on a ton of stuff for that specifically with your clients?
1: I have two revolutionary war museum projects that, you know, they obviously want to have done by 2026. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's exciting to be doing be doing this. Like I I remember when we were doing the the Civil War sesquicentennial interpretation and there was so much Civil War stuff. So it's it's cool to see the Revolutionary War content come around, which I've known a lot less about. Um, mm-hmm. So getting to dig into you know, some of that content has been really interesting.
0: And uh, I'm working with a historic a tavern museum up in New Jersey, and they're obviously really prepping for the 250th. So that's a huge part of the conversations we're having as part of the planning process. And then I believe that uh, a previous interpretive plan I did for the Princeton Battlefield, I believe that some of the funds coming available as part of America 250th are being used to help make some of those recommendations a reality. So it's definitely, it's an exciting time. I imagine there's going to be more and more work relating to that as we get closer to that anniversary. Outside of History Associates, I'm on the board of the Alexandria Historical Society in Alexandria, Virginia, and I'm also on the city's Archaeology Commission. And both of those organizations are also really gearing up for that and thinking about, you know, how are we going to approach this? You know, what options are we going to pursue? So it's something that we're seeing a lot of places look at. Uh, It seems that more and more grant funding relating to that is coming up, which is really exciting for so many historic sites. Even those who don't necessarily see themselves as having a connection to the American Revolution, kind of the focus of America 250th of, no, it's what was happening throughout what would become the United States in the 18th century. That's all relevant. So, you know, a site in Colorado George Washington might not have visited there, but there was still history happening there. There's still relevant history happening there, so that's been really exciting to see. Um, and so I'm re- I'm excited to see how this continues to develop.
1: Yeah, one of the the one of the museums I'm working with right now, it's in um, Indiana, and it's like about the the Revolutionary War frontier, and it's like living on the East Coast. I had no idea that there was any fighting out there. It's a really cool. To be kind of working in this in this field at this time.
2: And Hallie, what's the name of your company? Just because I feel like we talked about History Associates. Do you have a name for your? I company? don't have a name. You're I like, just okay. operate
1: under my okay. own name. Okay, I'm like yeah. I feel
2: like we said History Associates a million times, and I'm like wait a minute. Yeah, that's that's cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel close to History Associates too. I worked there for okay. a long time. You got to come up with a name, Hallie. Come on, Hallie, we need a I name know. Name. I know. Okay, I anybody did. who's
2: listening. Toss in names for Hallie. (laughs) Yeah, name my company, everyone. Name the company.
0: It could be a whole like NAI competition at the next (laughs) Oh, so fun.
2: Oh, yeah, you better be careful what you ask for, huh? Yeah, right? (laughs) All the the millions who are listening. (laughs)
1: Like that Bodie McBoat face. (laughs) You guys remember that?
0: There you go, consulting consulting face. Yeah,
1: Yeah, great.
0: (laughs) The one of the last exhibit projects that Halliot and I uh, consult uh, work together on the Guy Bradley Visitor Center down in Everglades National Park just opened, which is really exciting. And I think you know does a lot not to toot our horns, but I think does a lot right in terms of telling the story and also serving the needs of a visitor center, which is hey, explore, but also explore safe. Don't try and pet the alligators. So uh, you know, just or the want-
1: crocodiles, or
0: the crocodiles. So I think, you know, just kind of giving a shout out to that. So if anybody's down in the Everglades, definitely check out the Guy Bradley Visitor Center. It's it's an area that has an incredible human history. It has an incredible uh, natural history, and it's got an incredible present and hopefully an incredible future.
2: We'll be in um, St. Augustine, Florida next year for the conference. So hey. maybe some people get to the Everglades Thank you, Scott and Hallie for, for being on, um, being on our podcast as interpretive planners. It's good to hear kind of how you got there and what you're doing now and uh, all the different ways you can kind of be involved in interpretation, um, through interpretive planning. So thank you very much. And interpreters. That's, that's what
1: it's <laughs>